Well, it's important to remember, one, what the, the theme of the series is, and two, what the context of 1 Corinthians is. First, remember the theme is being led by the Spirit. We're talking about what it means to be led by God's Spirit, to have God's Spirit be sort of in charge and directing our lives. And we talked about in the very beginning of this series uh, that, that the Scripture is very clear that those that are led by the Spirit are the children of God, that an identifying characteristic of someone who's been born again, of someone who belongs to Jesus, who's been saved, is that they are led by God's Holy Spirit. And we've been talking about what that looks like using 1 Corinthians as uh, sort of the platform for that. It's important to recognize, especially as we get into this last section, that when Paul's writing to the church in Corinth, don't picture in your mind big building, lots of people sitting up front looking at a guy. Okay? Because church in the beginning, in the first century, all, the, all believers, they gathered in homes. And so when he writes to the church singular in Corinth, he was probably referring to many, perhaps dozens, of homes in Corinth where believers gathered together. Also, many of these believers had uh, a Jewish background. Corinth was, of course, a predominantly Gentile church, but they would have had a, uh, possibly a Jewish background or have been uh, those who were Greeks who had become Jews and then had become Christians after that. So they would have been familiar with the sort of the, the way the synagogue was laid out, so the way the Jews taught their people. And so some of those cultural realities uh, kind of uh, have a lot to say about what Paul's saying, or a lot about interpreting about what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 14. It's important that we recognize that he's talking about a sort of a different dynamic than how we do church today. Now, let me say this. Uh, number one, I don't think that means the way we do church today as far as like sitting like this and listening to a sermon and having music led from the front, that that is bad. I don't think it's bad. I think the Bible's really clear to not... Uh, prescribe what a church should look like. That's one of the that's part of the wisdom of God to make sure that, that that we have His Word, we have this guidance, we have this truth. But it's you might say generic enough so that it applies to every culture and all kinds of situations. Let me also say though that we also put a high value on house groups. This is why we're always saying, are you in a house group? You should be in a house group. Think about getting in a house group. We want to see more house groups developed. Because our desire, one of the ways we would, we would see ourselves as successful as a, as a church, as a leadership of a church, one of the things we would say that we are discipling well is if the vast majority of people who called Servants Church their homes were in house groups. Uh, it could be a, what happens on Wednesday. It could be a commitment to a women's ministry or the men's uh, fellowship. It could be a commitment to prayer meetings. It could be any one of those things, but it kind of a commitment to come together with God's people to interactively seek Him together because that's what the church does. And so a lot of that he's talking about here are things that would have taken place in what might have looked more like a house group situation. Also, it's important that you understand that even though I'm saying that, I'm not saying that things that he's talking about taking place here are not going to happen on a Sunday morning. We pray specifically that they do happen on a Sunday morning. We want to be open to what God wants to do. But there's a, there's a reality that, that what he's describing here and its historical context has played into how we pursue these things to be played out. Now, it's also probably important that I say to you, most of you 
are probably going to be challenged by something I say today. I say that because one of the, to me, what I consider one of the, 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 the healthiest parts about being part of the Calvary Chapel movement is that we have, I don't want to say unique, but we have a specific conviction about the gifts of the Spirit and how they should be used. And, and so as I talk about these things, you're, some of you guys are going to go, well, that hasn't been my experience. And you're going to think, I don't know if that's true or not. This is one of the reasons why we're having a Q&A session next week, so that you can ask specific questions. Now, remember, the way we think it's best to do this is if you ask the questions, write them down, put them in the little red box on the table in the back. We're going to take out those questions. We're going to lay them out. We're going to make sure they're on the screen. And Mike and Adam and I are going to be up here answering those questions next week. So we encourage you to ask those questions. You're not going to offend us. Even if you, if you disagree with us. I mean, we're going to filter the questions in the sense that if you're like telling us that we're all heretics and we're all dying and going to go to hell, I probably won't put that on the screen. But I will say, we disagree with, and then say what the, <laughs> what the thing was. We will do some of that as well. So, keep your, uh, an open mind, keep an open heart, be prayerful as we read these things. Follow with me as we get into verse 1 of chapter 14. Paul says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about, as you can see probably on the screen, we're going to talk about that. We want to learn what the priorities of ministry are supposed to be. One of the things that happens with this issue, this topic of of the gifts of the Spirit is, we can often want to argue and overly decipher about the distinctives of how to apply these things and forget about the big picture. What's the thing, what's the big picture, what's the big point that Paul's trying to make when he writes these things? So we've been talking about, haven't we, things like learning to follow Jesus, learning to serve others, uh, learning to be like Jesus and developing a heart of love towards others, an act of love towards others. And so today we're talking about learning to prioritize ministry because what happens here is Paul's wanting the Corinthians to say, listen, I think your priorities are off. I think your focus isn't where it's supposed to be. And he's bringing some very practical corrections to them. And the first thing he says here is, pursue love. Now we talked about love a lot last week. If you didn't hear it, I really encourage you to go back and hear that message. He says, pursue love. And I love the fact that he used very two, two very strong words here, two strong verbs, pursue and desire. Those are strong verbs, aren't they? We don't use those verbs unless we're talking about something strong, you know. You wouldn't say, really, you know, I'm pursuing a place to live unless you were like thinking, I need something shortly, you know. There's a, a, an intentional action there, like, oh man, I, I need to find something. You wouldn't say, you know, I desire a place to sit unless you're just exhausted and you're thinking, I've got to find a place to sit down. He uses these strong words because he wants this to be our, our heart. He wants this to be what we're thinking about. I'm going to give you three main things from all of chapter 14 about what I believe the priorities of the Spirit are, the priorities of ministry of the Spirit are. And the first thing is this, that the first priority is love that manifests grace. Love that manifests grace. Now, check this out. The Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10. It says, as each one has received a gift... Minister it to one another, notice, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
Now we're going to look at this, this verse as well as the verse after it a little bit more in depth in our house groups this week. But I want you to notice what he says. Look, every one of you has received a gift. You're to use that gift and this, it's to this end, to be a good steward of what? The manifold or the shown or the displayed grace of God. In other words, when it comes to using the gifts of the Spirit, which are often, which is the Greek word often charismata or grace workings, when you, when you use the gifts of the Spirit, it's just to manifest something, to show something, to demonstrate something of the grace of God. Do you know what the Bible means when it talks about the grace of God? It, it means that getting that which we don't deserve. It's God's favor upon us that we don't deserve it. That's the grace of God. The Bible often, Paul specifically often, uh, uh, puts, puts against the grace of God the works of man. So that, that our faith is either going to be in one of the two. Our faith is either going to be in the works of man or it's going to be in the grace of God. To try to blend those things is to not have biblical faith. Either you have a false faith, you believe in your own works, or you have a biblical faith, you believe in the grace of God. You're trusting in God's favor. And that favor isn't just a position. That favor is His active work in your life. And that active work leads to us doing the things that God calls us to do. This is why Paul says, listen, of his own ministry, he says, I am what I am by the grace of God, and I labored more than all the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. See, what God wants to show people, what God wants to show the world as they come and observe how we love each other, is He wants to show people His grace. He wants to manifest His grace. Because we're not saved by works, we're saved by grace. And so when He talks about pursuing love, it's a love that desires to manifest God's grace. It wants God's grace to be demonstrated. This is important because one of the things that we have to get through our heads if we're going to be involved in any ministry or, or be used in any way with any gift, that is this. It, it, it earns nothing for us. If you are wanting to use this gift or be involved in that ministry and you're doing that because you think I have to do that to get right with God or I have to do that to, to be accepted by Him or I have to do that to enter into heaven, you don't understand grace. See, grace is God initiating and providing and protecting and keeping the people that He loves. That's grace. God initiated the relationship that you have with Him, if indeed you have a relationship with Him. And if you don't have a relationship with Him today, I, I, I'd be willing to bet a dime to a dollar that God has said, I'm bringing you to church today because His desire is to initiate a relationship with you. It's God who initiates. That's grace. Not only that, it's God who saves. None of us can be good enough to save ourselves. It's got to be what He does for us and it's what He has done for us by sending Jesus to die for us. And to rise again. Grace. Grace. We cannot overemphasize grace. And God wants us to be demonstrations of that grace as we love each other. Love that manifests grace. Now, this often is an issue of us dealing with our own hearts. The Bible talks a lot about the heart, specifically in the book of Proverbs. 
And I heard someone once say, and I think it was, I thought it was brilliant. They said, look, either you lead your heart or your heart will lead you. I think that's really true. I think it's especially true of those of us who tend to be, um, who tend to, tend to be uh, quite emotional. I'm a kind of emotional guy. So it's easy for me to be led by my heart, my emotions, my feelings, when I'm really wondering what's going on. But God wants us to not be led by our hearts, but to lead our hearts. That's why we read these things like in the book of Proverbs, where it says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it shall spring the issues of life. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways, it says in Proverbs 7. Apply your heart to instructions, Proverbs 23. Do not let your heart be glad when your enemy stumbles, Proverbs 24. He who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. And of course, lastly, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. See guys, listen, God wants us to lead our hearts. What that means is your heart being that place of affection that God says, okay, what do you desire most? Lead your heart toward that area. You know, a lot of that just boils down to us getting alone with God and saying, God, would you please deal with me? I know that my heart longs for things I shouldn't want. I know that I often have an affection or a desire for things that you don't have for me. So I want to be obedient to you and I want to pursue love and let you give me the desires of my heart. Isn't what the scripture says, right? In the psalmist, the psalmist said that. Delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. doesn't mean He's going to give you all that you want. He's going to give you the wants that He wants you to want. He's going to put in you the desires that He has for you. And I, I'll tell you, I've seen this to be true so often. So, so much in, in my own ministry, God had been calling me to do something specific and I didn't want to do it. No, I don't want to do that, Lord. I don't want, I don't want that position or I don't want that... Uh, ministry, I don't think I have that gift, I don't want that, Lord. And God would be calling me that, and it would be a matter of me saying, okay, Lord, I just, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to love you. I want to pursue love for you. And I want to love my brothers and sisters. I want to pursue love for them. So if this is what you want, give it to me. And so then I start walking it. You know what happens? I have a desire for it. I begin to have a desire for that. I begin to ask God, would you do this for me? Now this is really important, because the thing is, is sometimes we're, we are... Sometimes we are, I think, having these things backwards. We are desiring love, but pursuing the spiritual gifts, pursuing the work of the Spirit. Oh, I just, if, it's, if I can just get the work of the Spirit, if I just get the Spirit to cooperate with me and do what needs to be done, that'll be what's fine. And yeah, hopefully I'll be loving in the process. No, pursue love and desire the work of the Spirit. You understand? So this is what God calls us to, a love that manifests grace. But here's the second thing. Listen, communication, this is the second thing, second priority, communication that glorifies Jesus. Now, picking up verse 2, Paul primarily is going to talk about, in verses 2 through 19, tongues and prophecy. And, And it's plain as day, this is the main point he's trying to make, tongues are good, prophecy is better. Tongues are good. Prophecy is better. That's the main point he's trying to make here. Don't miss that point. Okay? Now, here's something you have to understand. There are different categories of prophecy in the Scriptures. Okay? One of the categories is is what we might call authoritative prophecy or authoritative prophets. Moses. 
some of the Old Testament prophets, like the ones who actually wrote books of the Bible. Okay? Those were authoritative prophets. Jesus is an authoritative prophet. He's more than a prophet, but he's not less than a prophet. Okay? The apostles were authoritative prophets. These were guys who, when they spoke in the name of God, it had authority. It was, it was to be obeyed. Do you understand? So when we talk about authoritative prophets or authoritative prophecy, we're talking about that which has to be obeyed. It's not an option. Okay? Another category of prophets or prophecy in the scripture is false prophets. That is, those who say they speak in the name of God and what they say contradicts scripture. Okay? Jesus warned there's going to be false prophets. He said, look, this is what's going to happen. He told us this. We see examples of false prophets in the Old Testament. We see examples of false prophets in the New Testament. False prophets, listen, need to be uh, rebuked and resisted. There's, and, I, and I, I'm saying that for this reason, okay? Not because I'm wanting to get us all stirred up so we're all looking to rebuke each other. I'm saying this because sometimes what can happen is there can be a person who has a decent ministry. In other words, they believe the gospel. They're believers. And they begin to get into prophecy in a way, listen, to where they are saying, what I say is what God says and you need to obey this. And we think, yeah, that's a little off. We don't really agree with that. But they're a good guy, so I'll still listen to them. No, the Bible says we need to expose those people, take note of them, and avoid them. Those are false prophets, okay? The third category of prophet, listen, is what we might call regulated prophets. Regulated prophets. That's what we see a little bit in the Old Testament, as when Saul, as king, and some of the others were prophesying, but these weren't guys who were identified like the prophets uh, who wrote Scripture. These guys who would be prophesying. Or also what we see primarily here, like in 1 Corinthians 14, what we'd call regulated prophets. There's a big difference between an Old Testament or even New Testament authoritative prophet and a regulated prophet. There's a big difference. And you have to understand that difference. If you don't understand that difference, here's what's going to happen. Either you're going to have to come to the conclusion that there are no such thing of any prophets anymore. Because if they're all potentially authoritative, then the Bible is bigger than anybody else can carry. In other words, they're speaking the word of God, we should add it to the back of the Bible. Do you see what I'm saying? Or you have to say, or you have to say that, that uh, all these prophets who speak in the name of the Lord are authoritative, so that when you feel like God is leading you to get to, you know, you, John, like God called me, God used a prophecy to confirm that I was supposed to come to England, and another prophecy to confirm I was supposed to come to Norwich. When those things happen, then I'd have to say, if all prophecy is authoritative, that if I wouldn't have done that, I would disobey God and I couldn't be saved, or I, uh, or I was risking my salvation in a sense, you might say, or proving that I wasn't saved if I refused to obey in that way. But that would be another gospel, wouldn't it? No, the conclusion we have to come to in looking at all that the scripture says about prophecy is that there are authoritative prophets, those who basically God used to write the scriptures, There are false prophets, those that try to twist the scriptures that we need to resist and ignore. And there are regulated prophets, those who God calls to give specific words at a specific time for a specific person or people group. And those must be tested. They must be tested. In a sense, all prophets need to be tested, but the regulated ones must be tested. Now, this is is important to understand because as we unpack this, okay, as we unpack this, we want to make sure that you guys understand what we're talking about. This is mainly talking about regulated prophets. Because I know what's going to happen. Some of the questions are going to be, yeah, but what about when Moses said? Or what about when Micah says? Or whatever the case might be. 
Well, those are authoritative prophets. It's different. You guys follow me so far? Okay, good. All right. Now, Paul says, verse 2, he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. For no one understands him. However, in, his, in the spirit, he speaks mysteries. Mysteries just means something that can't be known until it's revealed. But he who prophesies speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort to men. Now, first thing about tongues and prophecy that Paul says, pretty clear here, right? He says, tongues are toward God, prophecy is toward men. Tongues directed towards God, prophecy directed towards men. This is important for two reasons. One, it's important because we need to recognize what's happening when we prophesy. And two, we need to understand what's happening when or if we speak in tongues. Now, it's also important because tongues in a public setting has to be interpreted. If tongues are meant to be directed to God, we should expect the interpretation to be what? Directed to God. So that when someone speaks in a tongue, and then we wait for the interpretation, and someone gives an interpretation that says, God wants us to know uh, that he's pleased with today, or whatever the case might be. Well, that was an exhortation. It was an interpretation. Otherwise, I mean, anybody could say anything after someone spoke in tongue. And I guess we have to say, well, I guess that's the interpretation. There's got to be a way to know it's actually the interpretation of a tongue. Are you following me? This is one of the ways. Also, let me be clear about what tongues are. Tongues are the supernatural ability to speak in a language that you don't know naturally. Now, some of you guys speak many languages. I think uh, Nikki Robinson speaks like four or five languages, I think, something like that. And uh, yeah, Julie speaks several languages. A lot, a lot of people here speak more than one language. Well, the, your fact that you can speak more than one language is not the gift of tongues. It's a great thing. God wants to use that, but it's not supernatural. Do you see what I'm saying? So tongues is not just the ability to speak another language. It's the supernatural ability to speak a language that you couldn't speak naturally. Let me also say this at this point about tongues. We read last week, Paul says in, the, in 1 Corinthians 13:1, Though I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a sounding brass clanging cymbal. Now, my conviction is this. Not everybody agrees with me this, but my conviction is this. There's no such thing as tongues of angels that we have. I think Paul's using hyperbole. You know what hyperbole is? Exaggeration for effect. I don't believe anybody who speaks in tongues is speaking with angelic languages. Because the word that's used here is glossia, and it's only ever used anywhere for known languages. Now, the reason I say that is because uh, the, the purpose of tongues, which we'll see in a minute, has to do with reaching people, not reaching angels. And so it didn't make any sense that there would ever be tongues of angels that God would give to a person. Now, different people disagree with me. Even people within the Calvary Chapel movement disagree with me, but that's my conviction. But I believe tongues is a, uh, a known language. It could be a dead language now, but it's a known language okay, that you're able to speak and you didn't know it naturally. So you're supernaturally able to speak, you don't know it naturally. Well, Paul says when you speak in tongues, you speak towards men, you, speak, you prophesy, you speak towards, I'm sorry, tongues towards God, prophecy towards men. Now, notice also in verse 3, he names these three things. He says, he who prophesies speaks what? Edification, exhortation, and comfort. This tells us something about prophecy, what it should look like. First of all, when he says edification, the word edification, as I said before, means to build according to a plan. 
Okay? Build according to your plan. When my son plays Legos, he has in his mind what he wants to build. Okay? When, when the people built this beautiful building that we're in today, they first drew up some very complex plans and then had people build according to those plans. Do you understand? They built the edifice based on an architectural layout. And that was edifying. Do you understand where I'm coming from? So edification means building according to a plan. So when prophecy says, when we say that prophecy is going to be uh, for edification or speaking edification, it means it confirms God's plan. It confirms what God has already said. So if anybody prophesies and it goes against what God says, throw it out. You don't stone those people. (laughs) The regulated prophets, people try to prophesy and they get it wrong. We don't stone those people now. If they say, I'm speaking in God's name and you have to obey me, well, no, okay, we can't stone those people either. But, you know, they would maybe qualify for that. The reality is, though, they have to speak according to what God says or it's not edifying. Do you understand? Now, this also, I believe, applies to prophecies that are, you might say, beyond Scripture. In other words, like the prophecies that I received, those specific words that I received at a specific time for a specific circumstance, that applies this way. When God spoke to me about coming to England, and I was struggling to come to England, the woman who had the prophetic dream that she shared with me had no idea of my struggles. But what that dream was, and I won't unpack it today, it take too long, what that dream was, was very specific to what God was already showing me He wanted me to do. And so it confirmed what God was already saying to me personally. Do you understand? Now, He also says it needs to speak exhortation. Exhortation simply means, okay, it means it's going to either correct or encourage us in our walk with God. This is why sometimes when people have a word for God and they send it and they they give what, what people say is that prophecy, it might be a simple exhortation. It might be just like, you know what, God's saying, keep seeking me, don't give up on this thing. It could be that simple, an exhortation. It's calling us to do this. Now again, I'd say, if it's more than just us having an idea in our head that we want to encourage somebody, if it is actually the Holy Spirit leading us to supernaturally give a specific word, it's going to be a specific exhortation. But it's going to either correct or encourage towards our walk with God. Also, he says, it's, it's for comfort. So when someone's prophesying, that prophecy ought to remind us of how good it is to be in the presence of God. There should be a comforting aspect to it. This is important because, like I said, this says something about prophecy. And to me what it says is that prophecy is timely. Look, we're all called to exhort one another. That's the biblical command. We're called to exhort one another. It doesn't mean that we're all going to prophesy. But as we're exhorting one another, listen, there can be a time when God stirs our hearts to say something specifically to somebody else and it might seem so, seem so simple and obvious that you think, ah, oh, it's kind of stupid, I don't want to say it. But it could be that God's prompting you because that is actually going to be a word of prophecy. It's going to speak comfort and exhortation to that person. Let me give you a practical example. My youth pastor, uh, uh, he's now a, a pastor himself, I'm not his, under his youth group anymore, obviously. Uh, he was uh, serving in youth ministry and was in a time where he was feeling quite discouraged. It was early on in his youth ministry. And he was actually wondering if God even loved him. 
You might think that's the stupidest thing. What do you do in a ministry if you doubt God's love? Well, let me tell you, pastors sometimes even doubt God's love. He was really wrestling with this, but ashamed of wrestling with something so obvious, so basic, so true in Scripture. And so he's crying out to God saying, God, I know it's wrong that I'm wondering if you love me. I know it's bad that I'm doing this. I know that you are worthy to be believed that you love me, but I'm wrestling with this and I don't know what else to do but to cry out to you and tell you this. So he goes to church the next morning and as he goes to church, a woman comes up to him and she says, Troy, uh, you're going to think I'm absolutely crazy, but I'm supposed to tell you this. I know I'm supposed to tell you this. God loves you. That was it. He starts crying because he knows that's God saying to him, I love you. Now, you might think, oh, that's not really prophecy. It's not, it doesn't have enough shebang to it, you know. Why not? A specific word for a specific person at a specific time. So the reality is, prophecy is going to be timely. The timeliness of it is what makes it prophetic. Do you understand? That God's wanting to speak something timely to a person or a people group at a specific time. Verse 4. He says, He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself... But he who's, who prophesies edifies the church. Paul says, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak with or speak to you either by revelation, by knowledge, by prophesying, or by teaching? Now, here's the, the, the next thing that Paul's saying about tongues being good, but prophecy being better. He's saying, listen, tongues can edify self, but prophecy edifies others. And when we come together, our motivation, the motivation the Spirit wants to produce in us is putting others before ourselves. Now, this tells us again something about prophecy. Because it's interesting that Paul talks about uh, in, you know, instead of in comparing again tongues and prophecy, he talks about how when it's the only thing that profits people is if there is either revelation, knowledge, prophesying, or teaching. All those things, listen, have to do with instruction. They all have to do with truth being known to people. All those things. So that listen, when we say revelation, what we mean by that, or what Paul meant by that, was truth being received. He doesn't mean just the revelation of Scripture, like you get new Scriptures. He means that God opens your eyes to the truth of Scripture. You receive the truth. It's truth received. That's revelation. When he talks about, listen, he talks about knowledge. He uses this word gnosko, this knowledge by experience. He doesn't mean a feeling. He means that you hear truth, whether it's through a, a specific word or through Scripture teaching or whatever the case might be. You hear truth and you go, that's what I'm supposed to do. Here's how I'm supposed to walk in truth. It's knowledge applied or truth applied is knowledge. When he says, listen, when he talks about prophecy, prophecy is truth proclaimed. And remember, biblically, prophecy isn't just foretelling the future. It's also forthtelling what God says. That's prophecy. Teaching is truth explained. Now this is interesting because what we see happening in Scripture is there's a connection often between prophecy and teaching. That doesn't mean that teaching is prophecy. But what I think it does mean is that prophecy is, and this tells us about prophecy, is instructive. It's instructive. Now, check this out. The Bible says in... Uh, oh, wrong one. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 23... It says, and a man has joy by the answer of his mouth. 
And a word spoken in, good, in due season, how good is it? A word spoken in due season. That is, in my mind, one of the, 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 the aspects of something being prophetic. It's timely and also it's from God. But also look at this. Speaking of teaching and prophecy together, describing the church of Antioch, it says that at, there was the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. And that's worded in such a way in the Greek that prophet and teacher is connected. In other words, they're the same thing. I'm not saying that someone who's a teacher is automatically a prophet, nor someone who's a prophet is automatically a teacher. But we do see these gifts often coming together, coinciding. Prophecy is instructive. Moving on. Verse 7. He says, Even things without life, whether flute or harp, when they make a sound, unless they make a distinction in the sounds, how will it be known what is piped or played? For if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? So likewise... Unless you utter by the tongue words easy to understand, how will be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. There are many, uh, there are, it may be, so many kinds of languages in the world, and none of them is without significance. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I shall be a foreigner to him who speaks, and he who speaks will be a foreigner to me. Now, Paul's point is really simple. He says, music communicates. Language communicates. Specifically, in military circumstances, language is, was meant to communicate something, right? A guy would get on a trumpet, his bugle, and he would blow out certain tune, and that certain tune would say charge or retreat or whatever. If they couldn't tell what the tune was, guess what? They wouldn't know what to do. Because music was meant to be, and this is the context of the way he's using it, music was meant to promote action. Here's where to go. Also, Language is meant to promote relationship. If I just start jibber-jabbing and making nonsense to you, it's not gonna, we're not going to have much of a relationship, are we? When, when uh, There used to be one of the deacons of the church that we, we got sent from. Uh, he loved babies, and he used to always talk baby talk to them. And when he talked baby talk to them, they would talk back. So they'd be like, blah, 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 we can do it. And he'd do the same thing to them, and they'd go back and forth. And it was cute, but it made no sense. They weren't actually having a conversation. They were just, the baby was just entertained by him, as were everyone who was watching him. Language is meant to communicate. Now this is important. Because God wants us to see this. He wants us to see that language is meant to communicate something specific. Now, I believe one of the things this is showing is, is that prophecy is directional. It gives direction. Or often what it does, it confirms direction. Now, I gave you the example of myself coming to England and then coming to Norwich and that God confirmed both those things through prophecy. But this is a great biblical example in Acts chapter 21. It says, A certain prophet named Agabus, who happened to be one of those prophets and teachers in Antioch, by the way, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and when he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So he brings this prophetic word, right? Really in a dramatic fashion. Takes Paul's belt, binds his hands, says, here's what's going to happen to you, dude. This is what the Holy Spirit's saying. And then after everyone who hears it goes, oh, Paul, that must mean that you're supposed to not go to Jerusalem. Here's what Paul says. Then Paul answered saying, what, uh, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? 
For I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, so that when he was not persuaded, we ceased uh, saying, the will of the Lord be done. Now here's how this is directional. The Holy Spirit had already told Paul, you're going to go to Jerusalem and you're going to suffer many things. We already know that from the scripture. The people who, who were there with him didn't know that. Agabus didn't know that. But we know that because Paul made it known. He knew God was calling him to Jerusalem and to suffer. So when he gets, listen, when he gets this prophecy, you're going to go to Jerusalem and suffer, you know what he's thinking? Amen. That's a confirmation. This is what's going to happen to me. The Holy Spirit didn't say, don't go to Jerusalem. It just said, here's what you're going to expect. Do you see what I'm saying? Prophecy today, regulated prophecy, often has a directional sense. This is one of the reasons why I believe we should desire it. If we're a church that's on mission, a church that wants to be sent, we should be praying for that. If we want to be a church that ministers to each other, we should be praying, God, you know, help me to know how to encourage people and speak to them. Someone was asking me once, do you guys do words here? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I do words from God here. And I, and I said, I'm going to say yes, because I think I know what you mean by that, but be more specific. And then when they explained to me, I said, absolutely yes. Because what this person was explaining was, what we would say is part of prophecy, a word from God. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's a directional aspect of prophecy. Now, verse 12, he says, Even so you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, let it be for the edification of the church that you seek to excel. Therefore, let him who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Now, you understand what, what Paul's saying here is being really clear. If a tongue, if someone speaks in tongues in a gathering, in a, in a public place or a corporate setting, and there's no interpretation, listen, it cannot edify the people. It can't build them up. I didn't say he said it might not. He says it cannot. It doesn't edify. This is why if someone speaks in tongues in our congregation... Like say, in other words, say we're having a, an open time of open prayer and someone prays out in tongues. We're not going to be disappointed or upset. We're going to be, okay, cool, praise God. And we're going to stop and say, uh, Lord, we just want to wait for you to bring the interpretation. And we're going to wait for someone to bring the interpretation. And if there's no interpretation that comes, for whatever reason, maybe there's no one there with the gift of interpretation or maybe there's no one there who had the, the faith to step out and interpret the, the tongue, well then, we're going to say, well... Brother, sister, thank you for sharing. We don't, obviously, it wasn't the Lord's will today, so let's move on. And we're going to move on and keep seeking the Lord. Because to keep praying in tongues when there's no interpreter doesn't edify anybody. This is also why we as a church don't have everybody praying in tongues at the same time. Some of you guys might have come from churches where everyone prays at the same time, including praying in tongues at the same time. I don't think that's biblical. Now, am I saying those churches are uh, anathema or cursed by God or something? No, absolutely not. It's a, it, it's a secondary issue. But that's why we don't do it here. Are you guys following me? All right? He goes on to say, verse 14, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is my conclusion then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with understanding. I will sing with the spirit, and I will also sing with understanding. Now, from verse now 14 to 19, we're going to get into tongues a little bit more. Here Paul describes what tongues is in a very clear way. The first thing he, he tells us, it's really important to notice, he says, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. 
In other words, when you're praying in this language, a known language that you only can speak in or pray in or sing in uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it, that is your spirit directly communing with God's spirit, praying to God, bypassing your intellect. You don't know what you're saying. Do you understand what I mean? You don't know what you're saying when that's happening. So now you can be edified. Paul already said you can, yourself can be edified through speaking in tongues that way. You can be feel built up. You can be encouraged that God is indeed with you and ministering to you. The few times that I've spoken in tongues has only been by myself. Just a few times. When I've been praying, uh, you know, and, and, and just seeking the Lord about something. And in my experience, I'm not saying this is the, the norm for everybody, but my experience has been I'm praying, I'm praising the Lord I'm just in a place where uh, I'm just so glad to be God's and I don't even know what else to say in English, which is the only language I speak. And I find myself just begin to pray in tongues. And I'm built up by that. I'm blessed by that. It doesn't happen all the time. Um, I think I probably could manufacture a tongue all the time, but I'm not sure if that's really of God or not for me. But that's what I've experienced. And I think Paul's saying here, look, you're, you're, you're bypassing your intellect when you pray in tongues, Okay? He says, in fact, my conclusion is, I'm going to pray with understanding. I'm going to pray with my intellect understanding. And because Paul spoke in tongues, I'm going to pray with tongues. I'm going to do both. Also, look what he says in verse 16. He says, otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, he who, will occupy, he who occupies the place of the uninformed, we'll talk about who that is, says, how can, how can they say amen at your giving of thanks since he does not understand what you say? For indeed, uh, you give thanks well, but the other is not edified or built up. Now, are, are you noticing what he's saying? Tongues bypass their intellect, but also tongues glorify God for what he's done. They give thanks to God. They're directed to God. Your spirit is praying to God, not addressing men. And listen, it brings glory to God. Now, this is exactly, listen, this is exactly what we see in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, isn't it? What happens at Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost? It names all these different ethnicities that are there for the day of Pentecost to celebrate the Feast of, uh, of Tabernacles. And what happens? Or Feast of First Fruits, excuse me. What happens? They're all hearing these believers who have just had the Holy Spirit come upon them and they're all speaking in tongues. And what do they say? They say, they hear... Oh, sorry, where is it? They say, we, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Now, again, this helps us understand what we should expect if there's an interpretation. So that if someone speaks in a tongue during a gathering that we have, and then we wait for the interpretation, and the interpretation comes and it's addressed to men, then we're going to go, you know, that's, you know, we're still going to wait for the interpretation, that's not the interpretation. Let's wait for the interpretation. Because the interpretation is going to be addressed to God. Also, listen, if someone speaks in tongues and then the next thing comes up and, and it, what comes out is, you know, something that's, you know, God, why don't you do this? God, why don't you help? God, why aren't you, help? Why aren't you doing what you're supposed to be doing? That's the interpretation. We're going to say that's not for, from God either because that's the, the, the mind of man who might be struggling with something and it's okay to pray that and pour out your heart, especially in private, but that's not tongues. Tongues would be your spirit made alive by God's spirit who is glorifying God because your spirit already has an understanding of what's happened, of the good things that God has done. You see, these are part of guidelines to know when something legitimate is happening and something illegitimate is happening. Are you guys following me? He says this, verse uh, 18. 
Paul says, I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. Yet in the church, that's the gathering together, I would rather speak five words in my understanding that I may teach others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, here's what I believe one of the things Paul's saying. I believe Paul's saying, listen, hey, I wish you guys could speak in tongues. Obviously, we know uh, from earlier in chapter 12, not everyone's going to speak in tongues, just like not everyone's going to prophesy. He says, but, you know, he seems to be indicating that his uh, best use of tongues was private. Just him and the Lord by himself. That's what he seems to be saying. Now, I'm going on a bit, so I'm going to have to hurry. It's important to understand that one of the reasons tongues is so controversial is because there are two diametrically opposed camps and a bunch of people who get stuck in between them. At one side is the, uh, what, what I might call uh, hyper-Pentecostalism, which says that you need to speak in tongues to prove that you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I would call that hyper-Pentecostalism. That's unbiblical, it's not true. Okay? They use a few proof texts from the book of Acts, but the scripture taken as a whole proves that's not true. You do not have to speak in tongues to say that you have the Holy Spirit. The other end of the spectrum is what we call now call cessationalists. And these are people who believe that these supernatural gifts, prophecy, tongues, uh, uh, gifts of healing, though it's interesting because a lot of them still believe that God still heals today, which makes no sense to me, but that's another issue. Uh, that those things don't happen anymore. That once we had the New Testament, there was no need for God to do that. We don't have those anymore. That's another, what I would call extreme. And I call it extreme not because there's not good people to believe that, just like there's not good people to believe some of the Pentecostal stuff, but because it's totally unbiblical. You cannot make a biblical argument for it. I've heard them all, man. I don't care how great the teacher is. The arguments they make are twisting scripture to, to back up what they believe. Now here's the thing. Pentecostalism came into popularity and influence because, I believe, God knew the church was in a place where they were doing all things in their own strength and he wanted to do something fresh. I really believe that. I really believe that charismatic renewal and Pentecostalism gained strength. It's only been a couple hundred years that this has been happening at great lengths because the church was dead and legalistic and not doing things in the spirit, in the power of the spirit, but doing things in the power of their flesh. I believe that. I really do believe that. Hope that doesn't offend you, but that's the truth. And I believe that the guys who are the cessationists have that view because they've seen so many people hurt and injured by a misuse of the gifts. They've seen so much bogus stuff. But here's the reality. The way we deal with bad doctrine is not with other bad doctrine. It's with good doctrine. The way we deal with bad practice is not some other bad practice. It's good practice. Now, I am not at all saying that we have the balanced right and we do everything just as it's supposed to be. I am not saying that. Nor am I saying that anybody who disagrees with the way we interpret the use of the gifts is automatically wrong or that I'm going to break fellowship with them. I have lots of friends that are much more 
you say charismatic or Pentecostal in practice than I am. I have lots of friends who, who aren't sure that any of that stuff is even supposed to happen today. And they are brothers in the Lord and we have fellowship. What I'm trying to say is, if Paul, if the Holy Spirit wanted Paul to take so much time and the church recognized this stuff needs to be in there, it's there for a reason and it's there so that we can pursue what God has for us. Now, let me just say this. If you desire the gift of tongues, you can ask us to pray for you and we will pray for you, but there's no guarantee you're going to get it. In fact, I would, let me just share this, share this too. Again, not that my experience is the norm. It's not. I'm not saying that this is normative. But what I'm saying is when I received the gift of tongues, it was me by myself on a rock in the forest. And I wasn't praying for tongues. I was just saying, Lord, what do you want for me? What, do you, what, do you, what else am I should be open to? Because to be honest, I was quite cynical of that stuff. And if I'm being totally fair, I tend to still be a bit cynical sometimes of this stuff. But then, you know, I spoke in tongues. Doesn't mean anything. Who cares? Here's the, here's the reality. Paul makes it clear, doesn't he, in the beginning of this section, right? What does he say? Pursue love, desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may what? Prophesy. Tongues are the least of all the gifts. Yeah, they can edify yourself. Yeah, you can use it in your private prayer thing. Yeah, it's a good thing. Yeah, if the Holy Spirit comes upon you the first time, you may include uh, receiving the gift of tongues. Nothing wrong with that. But why do we want to pursue this all the time? I believe it's because there's still this, re- this kind of residual idea that the real spiritual people, they pray in tongues. That's not biblical. It's not healthy. It can keep people in bondage. My poor wife feels condemned sometimes because she doesn't speak in tongues. She's filled with the Spirit more often than I am. Let's not be doing that. It's an error we don't want to pursue, okay? If you pray in tongues, awesome. I'm happy for you. I'm blessed. Use that gift. God might even call you to use it here publicly, but under these guidelines. But let's not make the big issue about, hey, can I speak in tongues? Now, I'm gonna. I'm going a little bit long, but I'm gonna. I'm gonna try to finish really quickly from 20 to 25, and then I'll save the last bit for next week. Okay? Because I want to make sure that as I'm talking about this, that we say how then are tongues to be used in a corporate gathering? Because listen, both though though tongues are good and prophecy is better, both have a purpose in the corporate gathering. Check this out. Verse 20. Paul says, brethren, I do not want, uh, do not be children in understanding, however in malice be babes, but in understanding be mature. Now Paul's wanting to make sure these guys understand something. He says, listen, I, I want you to, to be, I want you to mature in your understanding of how these things should be used. Now remember, part of being a child, or part of being childish, is that you only see things from your perspective. It's unhealthy for us, any of us, to create doctrine or even practice based on our experience. We should be open to what God wants to do and test all the things we experience to the Word of God. And if we're experiencing something that is contrary to the Word of God, we should throw it out. We should not do it anymore. Sometimes it's a a serious thing and we need to deal with that. Sometimes it's a minor thing, we just need to move on. But let's be mature. Let's be those who say, God, what do you say about these things? And let's wrestle through. Also, listen, he says, but in malice be babes. You know what malice is? Malice is evil intent towards somebody else. Let's stop judging each other. 
We really, especially in our church, man, need to give each other grace about this stuff. Some of you, some of the people that come from Pentecostal backgrounds, uh, they're still, uh, you still want to uh, feel the freedom to pray in tongues in a public setting. I'm not saying that's forbidden. The Bible says it's not forbidden. I'm saying pray and say, God, do you want me to do this and how should it be edifying and do you have someone who's going to interpret? Just pray that. Be open to that. But don't have malice towards people who are still wrestling with, I'm not even sure if this stuff is for today. Because there's people in our church here who come from backgrounds where they've been told this stuff doesn't happen anymore. Be patient. Have no malice. And you who come from those backgrounds where those things didn't happen or they were spoke down to, don't have malice towards your Pentecostal brothers or brothers who came from a Pentecostal background. Don't look at them and go, oh, weird Pentecostals. They're into this kind of speaking in weird languages and stuff. Instead, learn from each other. Love each other. You understand what I'm saying? And this is so crucial, especially in a church like ours. Now, Paul goes in to say how tongues are to be used. Look what he says, verse 21. In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me. Paul is quoting Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11. And the context of Isaiah 28, verse 11, is God's people are in captivity. They're surrounded by people, other nations who speak other languages, and they're there, listen, because they wouldn't heed the word of God. And because they wouldn't heed the word of God... They were surrounded by people that spoke different languages. And it was a testimony to them, this is a proof to you, you haven't been obedient to what God has said. Do you understand? Tongues was assigned to them. Foreign languages was assigned to them in Isaiah 28, 11, that they hadn't been obedient to what God had said. That's what the scripture is teaching. Check this out. It says, says the Lord, verse 22, Therefore tongues are assigned, not for those who believe, but for who? Unbelievers. Now again, isn't this exactly what happened at Pentecost? The day of Pentecost. How many people, before the Pentecost, how many people had seen Jesus resurrected? Anybody tell me? At least 500, because 500 at once saw him resurrected, right? How many people were at the day of Pentecost praying in obedience to God and waiting for the coming of the Spirit? Anybody know? 120. So there's at least 400 plus people that were being disobedient to their Lord, who they saw risen from the dead. Not to mention an entire nation of Israel who said, crucify him, crucify him, just weeks before. So what happens the day of Pentecost? All these people come in from all the the gathering nations, almost all of whom certainly knew who Jesus was and knew that Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified, claiming that he was Messiah, and the rumor was he'd been resurrected, and these guys are following him now. And what happens? The Holy Spirit falls upon all 120. They all speak in tongues. The only time they all speak in tongues at the same time. But here's the interesting thing. They all speak in tongues with different known languages so that all the people that are there who hear what's being said say, we hear them and understand they're speaking the wonderful praises of God. Peter gives a sermon, 3,000 people get saved. Those 3,000 people who got saved, listen, were Jews who had rejected the Messiah. As a sign to their unbelief, what do they hear? Tongues. Do you get this? This is what it's used for. Let me give you an example from uh, Pastor Chuck Smith, who was the founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement, wrote a good little book called Charisma versus Charismania. If you do a Google search, you can find a download for free of that book. 
Here's what he wrote, okay? He says, several years ago when Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa was quite small, we were meeting on Sunday nights in a clubhouse. On a particular Sunday evening, which was Pentecost Sunday, at the close of the lesson, we were softly worshiping God together. And I asked one of the ladies in the fellowship if she would worship God in the spirit. That would be praying and singing in tongues, okay? Since I knew that, that when she spoke in tongues, she spoke in French. As she began to worship God, I could understand enough of her friends to know that she was thanking God for her new life in Christ, for the beautiful new song of love he had given her. I thought this was especially beautiful as she used to be a nightclub singer prior to her conversion. At the conclusion of, the, of her worship in spirit, my wife began to give the interpretation of the, to the group. And knowing that she does not know French, I was particularly blessed to hear how accurately the worship of the spirit was being interpreted for the fellowship. After the meeting, one of the young men in the fellowship brought a Jewish girl from Palm Springs for counseling. When we sat down together, she said, Before we get to my problems, explain to me what happened here tonight. Why did one lady speak to God in French and another lady translate to the group what she said? And I said, Would you believe that neither neither of those ladies know French? I told her that I knew for a fact that neither knew French since one of them was a close friend and the other was my wife. I showed her then in 1 Corinthians where it speaks of gifts of tongues and interpretation. Then she told me that she had lived in France for six years and that the French spoken was in the perfect accent of what is called aristocratic French. She also stated that the translation was perfect. She then said, I, I must accept Jesus Christ now before we go any further. It was my joy to see her find her Messiah and become a member of the body of Christ. This was a, this, this, there was a demonstration of the gift of tongues followed by true interpretation, which was glorious praise and worship to God, the result being the edifying of the body, and in this case, the conversion of this Jewish girl. Now, that is what Paul is talking about. I, I should say this too for the record. Pastor Chuck says in a, in, a, in a chapter connected to this, he says that he, having grown up in a Pentecostal church, he's convinced he almost never saw tongues being used biblically. Which is one of the reasons he kind of came out of that, that denomination. What I'm saying is this, guys. Just because we've seen things misused or misunderstood doesn't mean we shouldn't pursue the real thing. Now, I know some of you non-charismatics are getting really nervous, but you need to be... Cool with this. You need to seek the Lord about this. Because this is God's word. I'm not making it up. Now, we're almost done. He says, verse 22, But prophesying is not for unbelievers, but for those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church comes together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in those uh, who are uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say, You are out of your mind? Now, come on. It's not not being disrespectful to say many of us have had this experience, is it? The first time I heard tongues was not in the Calvary Chapel. I'd been a Christian for a month. A friend of mine at work who's also a Christian said, hey, come to my church for morning prayer. I did. Everyone was speaking in tongues. I was going, what is going on? These people are nuts. Now, they weren't nuts. They were nice people who loved Jesus, but they had a practice that later found out wasn't biblical. And the truth is, the reason it's not biblical, one of the reasons Paul says don't do it is because people are going to think you're nuts. And there should be an expectation, listen, there should be an expectation that in our midst on any gathering, especially on a Sunday morning, there's going to be unbelievers. And what we do needs to have a heart towards God, but a hand towards man. We need to be sensitive to the people around. 
Now he goes on to say, though, but if all prophesy, and an unbeliever, an uninformed person comes in, and he is convinced by all, and he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his hearts are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. Now, this is not saying that everyone is going to prophesy. But what it is saying is, listen, if we were to pursue this, and we were to wait for God to actually do what he wants to do, and not try to manufacture something in the flesh, that when God is speaking through prophecy, it blesses believers because they understand what's happening, and it convicts non-believers. I'll close with this verse. I went way too long, sorry. Revelation chapter 19. This is John speaking when he's receiving revelation from an angel. And John says, I fell at his feet to worship this angel, basically. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Now, that by itself speaks. Because when God's speaking supernaturally, you know what we have a tendency to do? Bow down before the person who's doing the speaking. And whoever is doing the speaking, if, if you bow down to them, they should say to you, don't do that. And so often what we see in some churches that are wanting to do more in the realm of, of being obedient to the Spirit as people taking on glory for themselves. That's what we see, honestly, a lot on the God channel. And it's repulsive. No, we shouldn't do that. He says, this is what the angel tells John, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You see, guys, listen. The priorities of the Holy Spirit, the priorities for ministry, are one, love that manifests grace, and two, communication that glorifies Jesus. And the spirit of Jesus, or, or the testimony of Jesus, is the spirit of prophecy. So that all that we're saying is trying to encourage people to put their trust in Jesus, to be in union with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, to follow Jesus. That's when prophecy is powerful. That's when we know the Spirit's leading. Write your questions down. We'll do a Q&A next week. We'll finish those last verses. They'll actually go pretty quick. But can I just really challenge you guys to go back, be Bereans, and don't weigh what I'm saying based on anything but what the Word of God says. And don't weigh your experience based on anything but what the Word of God says. And ask God the Spirit to teach you to pursue love and see what God does. Amen?